0: I would imagine many of you maybe now or have in the past or maybe will in the future, or, maybe, or I wonder if many of you have ever wondered why you're enduring what you're enduring. Why God seems to have you endure what you are presently going through or had gone through, maybe without any answers. You may ask God, why now? Why this? these circumstances now? What are you doing Or maybe you found yourself telling God, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through what you're placing me through. I'm not happy. I'm lonely. I'm hopeless. And I don't want to be here. And imagine some of you have been there asking those questions, saying those things, shaking those fists to the creator of the world. My sermon this morning is your typical Christmas sermon where Luke clearly and simply shows and tells the the practical outcome of the birth of Jesus. We're the thrust of Luke's book, if you will remember from a couple of weeks ago, where he tells us why he's writing this particular book to these particular people. Luke is aiming to give those who have believed in the very gospel of Christ confidence in their very faith, guardrails as they pursue the rest of the world so that they can resolutely keep their feet on the ground and their face towards the heavens. Luke's book, lays down tracks for you and I to roll on, sturdy, concrete-feeling tracks that you travel with through your life, where you can have confidence in your faith, confidence in your hope, and confidence in your trust in Christ Jesus, where where you can battle the questions of, what are you doing, with the very confidence that you're going to the one who knows exactly what he's doing. We professed together earlier about the truths that we see from the Bible about Jesus. And the part of what is preached from the Bible about Christ is that he came to earth, was born a man, named Jesus, took to himself flesh. And that feature that we might think theologically about actually comes from the very verses here in Luke chapter 2. So I hope you'll see the glory of God according to his particular timing, his perfect timing for the sake of man's salvation. We're reminded again and again in the scriptures That whatever it is God seems to be doing with us, it is him who knows exactly what he's doing. And in this case, he knew exactly what he was doing when he sent a son who would raise man up back to him. I hope you'll see a couple of things within this passage. I'm, I'm going to call them holy moments or holy manners or holy particular places where this really is a holy account of something that seems so backwards. It seems so out of place in the glory and magnificence of the Lord because it's all happening around a birth in, a, in what feels like a barn in a place that seems so obscure, yet it is, it is truly holy for us. I hope you see, first thing, that there is a holy moment happening here, a holy moment that God is accomplishing, where God shows us the magnificence of his perfect timing. Ironically, in God's perfect timing of delivering the Son of God to earth was nowhere near the perfect time amongst the Israelites. They didn't even see it coming. You could imagine they would have lost hope. You could imagine they would have thought that the Messiah would be delivered would be delivered on the back of a triumphant horse but here he finds his way in a manger think of think if you ever have a collection of other people who were to choose when god would send his messiah he'd probably pick other times in the old testament under other circumstances when we went through the book of or the collection of the 12 the minor prophets you saw this desire from these prophets and people around them for the messiah to be delivered and none of them would have picked this even though it was spoken of very clearly in the scriptures. Like a thousand years before Jesus was born, Israel was the greatest kingdom in the Mediterranean world on that end of the land. Why wouldn't the Messiah be delivered then when everything was awesome? David was reigning. Solomon would follow his reign. They had peace on the side from all the enemies around them. Emissaries were coming to them from Africa and from far east. The king's wisdom, think of it, was wanted by everyone in the world. That would have been a perfect time. Practically, it would have been so much better than our text setting, but not according to God's desire and God's revelation to them. Because at this particular time in our text, Israel was not united, they were divided. There was a north and a south, two kingdoms. But these weren't just two existing kingdoms with the world around them. The Assyrians were actually ruling over the people of the north and the southerners lived like they were in exile. There was no true mighty kingdom of Israel anymore. They were owned and dominated by these Roman people who were pagan and gross and grotesque and awful. Yet it was at this particular time when God would send his son, even though they were a client state of Rome's oppression. If we lived, if you and I lived in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd be thinking, God, you have pagans ruling over us. What are you doing? Why are you allowing your people to be ruled like this? They weren't understanding what God was up to. They didn't care about what God was doing. These rulers that were over them were against God, and they were against God's people. And you can imagine their fish shaking at the sky. Why are you allowing all this to happen to your own? These guys are awful. Yet here in Luke, Luke the doctor turned historian, precise in his account, actually delights. You can imagine him pinning this out, delights in telling his friend and these early Christians. And you and I today guess, guess what words are coming next, how God would display his glory and sovereignty at the very birth of the Messiah. Guess how this would play out. He has the Roman emperor, the most powerful person in the world, and his regional representative, Cornelius, the governor of Syria, he has them actually do his bidding. I don't want to say dirty work, but that's a phrase that you and I would do. God didn't have anyone do his dirty work. But he's having these two pagan rulers actually play out the revelation that he wanted from before all time. You can imagine these people, the characters of Israelites in this text who may feel like pawns in the hands of the mighty power of the Roman Empire, and it's incredibly, and it's an incredibly efficient administration. But the fact that Caesar Augustus, the grand-nephew of Julius Caesar himself, is actually just God's pawn to carry out God's will. All of Caesar was wanting to do was to do things for harm against God's people. Yet see how God was using him for God's glory and these people's good. It's actually just God's pawn to carry out his will. Their times, or you can imagine your time, is held patiently in the hands of a sovereign, glorious, powerful, planned God. We're here. God uses the most powerful empire on the earth to do his bidding because he rules over everything. Not just you or your people, but he even rules over everything. Everything. Friend, in God's timing, in the days of Augustus, a decree was made that everyone should be counted so that everyone could be taxed. You know, when we had our son earlier this year, he got a social security number. And me being the Griffin cynic that I am, thought, man, you're 18 years away from paying taxes and they will find you with this number. The ruler of all time, it seems like, wanted everyone to be counted. Because he wanted everyone to be in submission to him. Think of the irony that this is playing out into the people of God. In God's time, he would use this man, this process, these agents of recklessness to actually bring his perfect one to play. You could say the timing was perfect for Christ to appear and preach. The world was at length governed by one master. And this was predicted in Daniel chapter 2. So that nothing, think of it this way though, they were ruled by one guy, but this would allow the very Messiah to go freely from city to city, from country to country, and proclaim the very news of the good kingdom of God that was at hand. Princes and priests, empires and kings had all been weighed against the truth of God's word. So it wasn't just that he could go where he wanted, but also there were all these competing ideologies that, that man would have had time to compare against God's truth. So they could never be tempted like, well, I haven't thought about this alternative to the God of God saying, submit everything to me. Jesus was able to go and preach. Jesus was able to say, you've had your time under the sun. Now listen to what I have to say. Dominated powers like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome had all shown themselves to be summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians, where there was no wise man, there was no good scribe, there was no good debater under God's eyes, and they proved themselves to be foolish. So he was able, in the right time of God's perfect plan, to go where he wanted to go to preach to preach what he wanted to preach in comparison of the foolishness of man, but also the very power that he was describing as the kingdom of God being at hand. He was able to say, look at all the other powers you've brought up, that I've brought down. And what do you think it means when I say, follow me? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, it says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so in God's good timing, the world was full of dark idolatry, even though the world seemed so bright. Why would God send a son into a period of darkness? Well, in many ways, to show what true light is like. It was in God's good timing that, as Daniel Ford designated, a rock from true glory would come and smash the idolatry of man. If you've ever studied that part, I preached it like three years ago, you've ever studied that part where it looks like this otherworldly rock is smashing a statue that was a combination of worldly ideologies and powers that that felt like an image back then and it was but it was very real when the son of man actually came and was born and what he would do would be a continual desolation of pride and wrongful power it was in God's good timing as J.C. Ryle says our dear beloved It was time for God to interpose from heaven and send down an almighty Savior. It was due time for the Christ to be born. Israel was nothing to boast about a thousand years later after their might. They were small. They were insignificant. They were weak. Yet, as you know from Romans 5, while we were still weak, it's then and there at the right time, it says, of which God will come, Christ will be delivered where he would die for the ungodly. Friend, I hope this text, even in this part, this seemingly glossed over effect, actually serves as a resting of your soul in the midst of all the circumstances that God has gathered you to himself through. On this particular morning, he's gathered us together to worship. In your particular Monday morning or Tuesday afternoon, he has gathered you at some point to see himself through the very circumstances that you might find yourself in. But passages like this actually serve as a resting place that look at all of what God is doing and he's not leaving you behind. Don't allow your soul to give way to worry or anxiety of the circumstances around you as if God's calendar needs your mark and input. Feel and understand and know this very holy moment. And that is how God always acts. He is never out of control. One of the most Uh, one of the most recent, you call them heretical movements in, in church history, is something called open theism, where it sounds very kind and cute of the Lord to be so evolving in man's ideas or maybe transforming over time. You know, like he's, he's this artificially intelligent being that's growing in his own love and his own awareness and his own understanding of how true humans are in 2023. Aren't we so different than we were in 1900s, you know, when everyone apparently wore like spurs and cowboy hats and just shot everything that they saw. And so we create this God that kind of changes like us, which is a not only unbiblical thing to see, but a very hopeless thing to worship him. Our God, this God, in this particular time, according to these particular circumstances, is always acting as he always has been. We sing, O come all ye faithful, because it's true and it gives us full hope. Can you imagine singing the opposite? O leave all you unfaithful, for I can worship myself. I want to humbly suggest that many of us need to be reminded of God's sovereign hand in the affairs of his people, where our God is the God who reigns even through men like Augustus and even in events like unfair political movements. Do not fear your circumstances for your God reigns over them. So you see a holy moment here through all these particular things. You also see though a holy mark next in the next couple of verses. You see a holy mark Where this holy moment or mark came at a perfect time where this holy mark is made in a perfect place, Bethlehem. Look at verses four through five. Verses four through five of the text. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the house of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And they were there, and at that time, it it became time for her birth. This looks like a fun journey. They went about their way. Micah chapter 6 would promise that the Messiah was going to be coming from this place of Bethlehem. Now, if you're just looking at where Mary and Joseph were coming from, and you, you have kind of dividers of time in that, if you were gonna make this a dramatic play and carry thing out, you know, darken lights and brighten lights, you're gonna see, okay, they're over here and somehow they wind up in Bethlehem. While they were over there, you might wind up hopeless by wondering how in the world are they gonna to get to Bethlehem? How is God going to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that the Messiah can be born? If not in Bethlehem, then none of what the scriptures say can be true. The Roman emperor and the governor of Syria will actually take care of that for them. The Jewish administrators will decide to make everyone go to their hometowns. You couldn't even sign up to be counted from some far away. You and I couldn't do this on the internet or maybe you vote online or maybe you vote in person. Uh, But here they had to go to their very hometown where this one would have been carried out. It wasn't done in the way, and, and, and amazingly, this actually wasn't carried out in the rest of the empire like this. In the rest of the empire, people could have been a part of a, uh, an accounting of people's lives wherever they were living. But here they were told they had to go to their hometown. And so Joseph and Mary are going to make their way all the way from Galilee to Judea and then within that to Bethlehem so that a prophecy is going to be fulfilled. Now back to my question at the very beginning. You may regularly ask yourself, why does he have you here? I'd imagine some of you airmen... Propose to your wife if you have one and you say man, welcome to the Air Force. We're moving to Enid, Oklahoma And some of you are like that sounds terrible, but what what always happens you move back don't you? You love it or you might have found yourself and why am I at this college? Why am I at this place? I know some of you move here to be near your family and you might be wondering my whole life was set up I don't know in San Antonio and now I'm living here. Why does God have me here? where you need to be is always right where God has you in order to bring himself more glory and in order to transform your life and your heart to where you are like his son wherever you are to be God will have you right there but you can be assured of this God will want you or God will place you where he wants you look at all the circumstances of delivering his son and to carry that out Eight degrees later, the reason why all of this took effect was so that his son could rightfully, joyfully, purposefully save a people. He didn't just show up at the cross. He didn't just show up in a manger. He didn't just appear by an announcement. All of this was according to God's plan. In Mary and Joseph's case, he used an emperor to accomplishment, where God always places people where he wants them, like Jesus, like Mary, like Joseph. None of this was a problem for God to carry out. God is sovereign in all of our ways, in all of our times, in all of our places, where all the circumstances of our lives are in his hands, where we can fully trust him. J.C. Ryle has this quote from his commentary on this passage. The overruling providence of God appears in the simple fact. He orders all things in heaven and earth. He turns the hearts of kings whithersoever he will. He overruled the time when Augustus decreed the taxing. He directed the enforcement of the decree in such a way that Mary must need to be at Bethlehem when, quote, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer know that they were only instruments in the hands of God, the God of Israel, and they were only carrying out the eternal purposes of the king of kings. Friends, you and I can trust God because of his character. Because of his timing, because of the way that he executes his goodwill towards his people. So you see a holy moment. You see a holy matter, but you finally see in this passage the holy manner of which God does all that he does here in our passage. Look at verses six through seven. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The manner of Jesus' birth, the context in which he was born, is absolutely shocking. You and I think about our God, who has always ruled and reigned in heaven, will always rule and reign in heaven, exposes himself to his people through a holy word, or a holy temple, or a holy gathering. He uses things like incense and gold and power and things like lightning and storms to bestow his mightiness to the ends of the earth. And here, they're in, a, they're in a backwater manger where Jesus came. But it reminds us of the greatness of God's very love to us in the gospel, where the character of God, the purity of his glory the greatness of his grace is shown to us in the condescension and what we call the incarnation of Jesus himself the gospel's message of Jesus has within it the truth that we have all rebelled you and I have all rebelled against him meaning Jesus we have all rebelled we have all shown wickedness towards him God of God And we have chosen a piece of fruit over him and we have preferred to worship ourselves and our own dreams and our own ambition rather than him. And in order to rescue us, it is God who prepares his son to be born, not in glory, but in this passage, humility, not in a palace of gold and silver, but in the feeding trough of unclean animals not clothed in silk and beautiful baby garments, but wrapped up in clothes that have been stripped and wrapped around him to keep him warm in a manner of peasants. In other words, in this passage, we are seeing God humbling himself in the humbling of his son for the sake of those who have, we don't think we did, but we humbled ourselves by our own pride. This is the glorious picture of what God has done for his people in the gospel. Whatever it takes, God does. Whatever it costs, ta- it costs. God pays. Wherever he has to go, it is God who goes there. Whatever he has to bear, he bears on his own shoulders. The Savior, you see, from this passage, from this very moment of his birth, begins to personally experience the humiliation that we experience all the time because of our sin. Although it wasn't because of anything that he did. He accepts this experience of humiliation because he is living for us in our place. So every calamity that his people experience because of their sin, he experiences because of their sin. Every disappointment that his people experience because of their sin, he experiences because of their sin. Every rejection that his people experience, he experiences. Friends, Christ Jesus, born in humility, accepts your deserved consequence for sin and will continue to live in humiliation all his life, so, that he, that, so then he can crown that humiliating life by a humiliating death because of the greatness of God's love for his people who don't care anything about him. That's the gospel message from this passage. We see this displayed here. I was, I was telling the elders uh, in our elder meeting, um, we always kind of have, someone gives a devotional, typically it's me. So. I didn't want to work that hard, so I just did this passage and kind of talked to it. And even when I was studying for it and even talking about it, it is amazing where Luke starts us at the very beginning in this glorious portrayal of a holy temple, and then almost one episode later, the very king of kings comes to be born in a trough, and it wouldn't stop there. He would be beleaguered, he would be rebuked, he would be pushed away, he would be denied by his own family and friends. He would even be lifted up, beaten, and crucified, and then laid in a tomb. In many ways, we have magnificent, beautiful, cute, like wooden outlines of what a manger scene might look. If anything, it is an illustration of one who was sent so that he would be crucified. For the very ones who are surrounding him in that inn. Friends, recognize the power that this passage displays, that God is holy in what he does, that God is holy in where he is, and that God is holy in how he does all of this, so that you may be lifted up, even as you brought yourself low. There's one last glorious thing, and I'll end with this, that I want you to see from this passage. I just want you to see the sheer irony of God's sovereignty displayed in the moment and mark and manner of Jesus' birth. It's not just the timing of the incarnation that's surprising. It's not just how God gets Mary and Joseph to the right place for the incarnation that's surprising. It is also the very manner, the method, the context of the incarnation which is so surprising where God's power is actually displayed in the weakness that man has brought him in. And so you and I can respond to this in tremendous faith we can respond to this in tremendous trust. We can respond to this in tremendous hope that the son who came like this, it is promised will come again. So that you and I, when we wander around, wondering the circumstances of our life, shaking our fists at the sky, going, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we where we are? We can continue to look at the one who has us, holds us and keeps us and promises to come again. Let's pray.